0: anyone expects they'll have a hard time with their partner after baby comes along. But the reality is most couples struggle. New York Times bestselling author of How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids, Jancy Dunn, tells it like it is and gives real solid advice on how to make it better. You guys, today I am stoked to have our guest, Jancy Dunn. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like this is going to be one of our most raucous, entertaining podcast (laughs) shows that we have. (laughs) So thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Yeah. Will you tell us your story? Who are you? What do you do? And what got you to where you are today?
1: Okay. I am... A journalist, and I've had this very kind of kooky career where I was a rock chick for 13 years at Rolling Stone. I was a staff writer there and I was a VJ on MTV2, which is so odd. And I wrote a sex column for GQ <laughs> and an advice column for Oh the Oprah magazine. And just in the in my line of work, you have to do a bunch of different things. I wrote a children's book and I've written a bunch of books, six. And Everything oh. from Cindy Lauper's autobiography to the book that I, you know, just wrote, and so I just do a lot of different things, which is great. I write about health for Vogue magazine. I grew up in New Jersey. Never thought I would have this job, and it's been a dream job. But one thing that I frequently <laughs> do is I t- I turn every aspect of my life into material, which is sort of craven, but there you go.
0: No, I'm with you on that. I, <laughs> no,
1: I can relate to that. So I wrote when I had a baby. Now ten years ago, I had a daughter named Sylvie. I had married this really evolved guy. He's a journalist as well. He writes books, and his name is Tom Vanderbilt. He's not one of those Vanderbilts, which he didn't tell me till our third date. His dad's a pipe fitter from Chicago, and so I, you know, he was this lovely evolved guy. And then when I had the baby we slid back into the fifties. It was absolutely bizarre. We we started fighting all the time and we would never fought really very much before. We were one of those annoying couples that rarely fought. And then we started fighting constantly and I had the world's shortest views and he just wasn't helping out. Even the very word helping annoys me now. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we just, I just couldn't believe it. And I felt so isolated because there's shame around fighting with your partner when you have kids. It was a combination of things. Just stop me because I can blabber on and on about this, but like- the- Yeah, no, keep going. Okay, it was it was a number of things. It was, I felt isolated, like, Jesus, is anyone else fighting with their husband to the extent that I am and calling him terrible names? I figured, oh, the baby won't notice, you know, doesn't doesn't speak yet and she's, you know, and right. I would get so angry, and it was, of course, when you're when you first have a baby, you're sleep deprived, your hormones are all over the place. But it was it was deeper than that. I see now that my secondary emotion, my hidden emotion, was that I felt betrayed. I felt sad. Like, wh- what happened to you? Where are you? Where, wh- why aren't you? Why aren't you? You know, being a, an equal partner with me, or even semi equal. I mean, I was doing almost everything. Most of the ninety five percent of the childcare and the household chores, which had suddenly increased a lot. And so, you know, but it's funny, you don't want to, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't tell my mother cause she has a long memory and she'd remember anything I said 25 years from now. And I couldn't even tell my sisters or my friends because it's one thing to have a boyfriend. I mean, I, I used to share very granular details about my boyfriends to all of my friends but I don't know with your husband, it's different, isn't it? And you're a little more protective. And I would go on social media and everybody looked with their new babies would look well slept and happy and that they weren't fighting and they were having sex. And it was just, I just felt like I felt really alone. And so when I started thinking about writing this book, I thought maybe it it could help people. And there's not many taboos left around parenting but this is still one of them is is how bad the fighting is and it's it's largely behind closed doors you
0: know yeah a lot behind closed doors and i think a lot of especially in our age of social media like let's put on a really pretty face for like the Christmas photo and for (laughs) Instagram. And then we're just going to be like duking it out every single night. And mostly it's going to be me yelling at you or internally seething about how much I literally, I literally hate you, which is, I mean, the name of your books, like how not to hate your husband after kids. I mean, it's funny, but it's really real. I mean, I think that most moms that I know, and I know, part of the way that you came to this book was like just chatting with other moms on the playground, right? About this universal feeling. Yes. And, you know, there was kind of some internal debate about this title because it is
1: a little inflammatory, but how to love your husband after kids is just not going to sell as well, is it? It's not. No. And- You know, and this was the feeling. And if I could have done it differently, I would have put like a false. I know, cost more money publishing wise, but like put a false cover over it, like
0: you know, introduction Mm -hmm. to string theory or something, right? But what was your question? I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh no, I was just saying that you started this when you were on the playground. Like you talked to other moms, and as you'd get into it, you'd be like, every other person feels this way too. Oh yeah. Once I kind of opened up the Pandora's
1: box people, my friends were telling me all kinds of things. And and in fact, this happened, well, I thought, okay, this is in the air, maybe I should write a book about this. Because the more people told me, the more I thought, this is really not being discussed as much as it could be. And it's funny because after the book came out, some of my very close friends would say things to me like, one of them said, oh, right, I didn't talk to John for two years after the twins were born. And She didn't, she hadn't told me that when it happened. She, and we talk about, you know, we are good friends and we talk about all kinds of things. I helped her through the death of her father and, but she didn't feel comfortable telling me. And I certainly didn't feel comfortable sharing either. So yes, the more I talked, the more, the more I thought, ah, okay, I'm not alone. And, and when I do events, the things that mothers (laughs) tell me afterwards, we're all in it together together.
0: Yeah. And okay. So you started out by, it seems like doing a bunch of research about kind of male and female brain biology. And you talked with like psychologists, scientists, even the FBI. So tell me, I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of like the actual like stats or whatnot, but just tell me the themes, like some of the most fascinating themes that you found as you did this research.
1: Okay. Well, there's, you know, I would quiz people like what bothers you the most. For instance, one thing is that it always really bugs the crap out of mothers that when a baby cries, they shoot out of bed and help the baby and the, the father still sleeps in, and, and, you know, same in, in hetero couples. That used to drive me insane because my husband, I would think, are you faking it? Are you doing like cartoon snoring? Are you really sleeping through this? But there was this, you know, UK study that I thought was fascinating that they measured the brain activity of sleeping men and women and found that while- a baby's crying was the number one nighttime sound that was most likely to wake up a woman. It, it didn't even figure into the top ten for men. It was behind car alarms and strong wind. I mean, not even in the top ten. And it was because they theorized that it was kind of this evolutionary basis that you know women in years past were primed to respond to you know, noises of their children, because that was their main job. While men, if there was a, their main job was to respond to threats posed to the Klan. So if, you know, there was, if there was a strong wind, it could blow the shelter down. So that's where they were more focused. And I thought, ah, okay, that, that makes sense to me, you know? And then another issue is one of the main ones I always heard is, is I always do things immediately, but my husband I'll ask him to do something and he'll say, yeah, all right, sure, later, you know, and that just sends women into orbit. And, you know, I talked to one, a couple of psychotherapists and they were saying, well, yeah, of course, and a, a social scientist that women have to do time-associated tasks by and large throughout the day, preschool pickup, night feeding, things that you can't wait, you can't wait on a night feeding, you can't say in a minute to the baby, right? And so women are used to, are programmed to respond instantly, whereas men are not as much. And so that's where the difference lies, you know? So there was all kinds of things like that. And also, you know, frankly, is that, you know, for many, many years, men have felt more entitled. I mean, that's just, they feel more entitled to their free time. There's been these time use, you know, studies they're perfectly fine plopping down on the couch and looking at their phone while you're doing a lot of work. And and so that was a bit of an eye opener to me too, is like, okay, you know, I have to cultivate a little sense of entitlement too, which I certainly didn't have. I mean, I mentioned in my book, I used to do this nutty thing where if we had a box of crackers, I would go through and eat all the broken ones. Like, okay, that now they will be whole crackers for my daughter and my husband. I, I, don't, I don't know why I was doing that, but I, this was very, you know, I, I definitely in the book had to examine my own behavior and see what I was contributing or not contributing. Cause this isn't some sort of, you know, diatribe against my husband. I mean, it is, but also I had to, you know, see what I was doing that, that was wrong.
0: Yeah, and like temper it with what's the actual evolutionary biology behind it. I mean, I'm gonna be honest. When I was about halfway through your book, I think I hated my husband more than I did before <laughs> I started reading because I saw myself and all the other moms I know in you. Like, can you talk about this this kitchen story of you that you talk about in the book with the, like the octopus deal?
1: Oh my god. Okay, this is just night after night of what the scenario was in my home in Brooklyn, which is that. Okay. So one night I wrote about this. I'm I'm in the kitchen and I'm checking my child's homework. This was a while ago. It must've been like preschool homework or I don't know what it was. And, and I'm cooking dinner and I'm cleaning and I was doing like 75 things. And I really was this octopus. So I'm this typhoon in the kitchen and all of a sudden, and my husband's on the couch and he had taken up social chess, this, this you know, online chess thing along with, Right when the baby was born, he took up social chess and became very obsessed with perfecting his chess game, training for the New York Marathon and long distance cycling. So he could literally pedal and run away from me and the baby. So he's on the couch and he's looking at his, I can tell he's playing chess with some guy from the Philippines. And I'm working away. I'm doing 75 things. I'm emptying the dishwasher also. And so he gets up and I think, oh, good, help, here he comes. He wasn't helping me. He was actually weaving past me so that he could go to the fridge and get out a bottle of wine for himself and some snacks so he could settle in while he was playing social chess. And then he was looking and he said, no wine? And I just lost my mind. And it's it's this thing, you know, Nora Ephron wrote about it too, where men look in the fridge and say, where's the butter? When the butter's right in front of their face... And so I started yelling at him because our dynamic is definitely, I yell and he retreats. And it's a very common dynamic among straight couples, pursuer distancer, it's called. There's a couple of different terms for it. And so I said, oh, no wine. Sorry, Lord Grantham that I didn't check the storerooms. I'll alert the staff. And I just, I just went off on him. And, you know, what led me also to writing the book is, and I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to think about it now, is that I when I started delving into research about fighting in front of your kids or even your baby, is that my main motive to fix our marriage is that I, I realized, oh, we're ruining our child because when I would yell at him, she started, when she got a little older, Sylvie, our daughter, started jumping in front of him and saying, Don't yell at daddy. Because of course what her child mind saw was me losing my mind and him looking like the victim. And so she would take his side and I thought, oh crap. And then of course, you know, as a pediatrician, like you think that you can't selectively fight the collateral damage lands on everyone. And there's been many studies about, you know, measuring infants brainwaves, you know, when things are happening around them. And they measured, I'm trying to remember where, UCLA brainwaves of, a babies babies that were as young as 6 months and when their parents had harsher argumentative voices the babies were having stress responses and i thought oh my god i'm i'm ruining my child we have to fix this and you know it's it's sad now when i think about it that the fact that our marriage was was heading into the toilet and we were really about to lawyer up wasn't a motive for me, really, it was about like, uh oh, we're ruining our kid. I mean, w- whatever works, but.
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly, I will say that's true for me too. My husband and I started going to therapy to learn how to do all the niceties, which, I mean, it's it's good, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's good. Like all the things that you talk about at the end of the book, I'm like, huh? Check, 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 doing them, you know? But because our child, our children, I could just see the little looks on their faces and how they were like, what's happening between you guys? And I saw them start to like, like my older one, now she's six, but I saw her at the time start with like her dolls to like act out this like mommy being like, that's enough. I've had it. Like walk out of the room with her dolls, you know, just imitating exactly what I, what I was doing. Tell me about your experience with therapy because I know it was like an intense one.
1: Yes, we saw a number of therapists, and the most intense was this therapist named Terry real he's from Boston and he's you know in my i mentioned I write for oh the oprah magazine and he's he was very well known in oprah circles. And, he, and and my friend said, "Oh, you have to go to Terry not cheap he's eight hundred dollars an hour, but he sets you straight in a really he uses blunt language he swears he really was the absolute jumping off point for changing the course of our marriage. And we went to this weekend intensive with him. Intensive is the word because he was ruthless to both of us. We had just a day long session. I thought, "Oh, please, you know, wh- what's one day?" By the end of it, we were shaking. We were, you know, grey-faced and he he basically yelled at Tom and said, "This is the 21st century. Get your ass off the couch. Your your wife is worn out." And then he said to me, We have to work on your temper. You're a martyr. You are very comfortable with your self-righteous indignation. It stops today. He would scream at the end of each issue, it stops today. And by and large, we were so scared of going back to him, especially my husband, that a lot of our behavior really stopped. (laughs) And he said to me, You're emotionally abusive. I said, No, I'm not. I'm just venting. And he wasn't having it. He said, venting has no place in a marriage. Just you know, dumping on your partner. Swearing has no place in a marriage and abusive behavior and humiliation. And it stops today. So he yelled at us to practice what he called full respect living. And he said, You're the grown-ups in this house, not your child. You are the grown-ups. Your children need to see you. He was speaking children you know, we as a nation, I only have one, they can see you fight, but it has to be fair. It has to be resolving problems, not not calling each other names. And, you know, if you think that, you know, you're modeling behavior that your child's not going to pick up on, you're crazy. Of course, of course she's, it doesn't matter what you say, you know, and, and this is true also, like we, we were doing all this, you know, I know you have two daughters and we were doing a lot of like, all this high flying rhetoric. Girls rule, girls can do anything. Right. You know, a girl right. can be president. But what she was seeing is both my behavior, which is, you know, females clean toilets, you know, and and men sit on the couch. Like our actions were not aligning with our words. So so he made us, you know, start from scratch, which is what I had, you know, almost every expert's and and counselor would say, when you have a baby when you when a child first enters your home, you have a brand new relationship and you have to start from the ground up. Like every, you know, I had one therapist when we went to someone in New York, his name is Guy Winch, and he said, There isn't one single aspect of your marriage that isn't touched by the arrival of this child. Like you, everything was new, yes. sleep, everything. So you have to start from the beginning, and that was
0: tremendously helpful. Like, ah, we have a new relationship. Yeah, this is not going to be something that just like happens for you to be successful. You have to be intentional about it and like start from scratch, right? Yeah, because prior to that,
1: we really had had you know this feeling that well everything's going to happen organically because in our relationship it was fairly easy. I was so happy to meet him after a series of really horrible boyfriends that that we we just didn't fight that much. And and you know, things kind of worked out organically. It's again, what Nora Ephron said that a a bomb goes off in your marriage when a baby arrives. And so nothing organic is going to happen ever again. And so we, we really had to be intentional about everything. But really one of the main things is just the language that we used with each other, which was very, very hard not to swear and stuff from my end. He never swore at me. I was always the one that went, You know, went off.
0: Yeah. And I want to read from your book. So this is what he told you to say to yourself like in a room, right? Where you'd like look at a picture of Sylvie and then say, I know that what I'm about to do is going to cause you harm, but right now my anger is more important to me than you are. I started sobbing when I read that because A, I saw myself in that and B, because it's so true. We are the adults and we do have to take ownership for just like at my job I would not yell at every single person who walks in when I get irritated at them <laughs> I would take a step back in my husband in my relationship with my husband I have to do the same thing we have to do the same thing with our with our partners even if you don't have a husband if you have just a partner in general right for listeners like it it matters how we are with our, with our partners for our kids and, and for ourselves. I mean, the, the, you started with this based off what it was going to be like for your kids, but really in the end, I'm sure you had a better marriage because of all the hard work you're doing and are continuing to do.
1: Yes. I mean, and and that's, of course, you know, I know it's like, oh, of course the author's going to say that, you know, everything worked, but in fact, it really, it truly did because we just have systems in place and, you know systems are good when you have the chaos of kids right and so we we really did almost robot like sometimes follow systems systems for fighting systems for everything but but it made it made things a lot better because another thing that was a consensus among experts is problems arise when things aren't clear and this was everything from you know i had an organizational expert even again the person that helped organize oprah's life and and so you know and if it's good enough for Oprah, it was good enough for me, right? And yeah, <laughs> yeah for real. <laughs> they would all say, like, when things aren't clear, that's where the problems arise. It, and and you know, a small example would be on weekends, you know, we would argue about who deserves to sleep in more, who deserves to have a little break from taking care of the baby. And like that stuff doesn't work because it just spirals out of control. It's not a system, it's not, it's it's unclear, things are fuzzy. Even specifying about chores, we, you know, we sat down and we made a chore list. It was the most boring day of my life, where we had to write down every, you know, on the advice of another expert, write down every single thing we did and divvy it up. I wanted to die of boredom, but it did help because, you know, if you expect someone to, by someone I mean my husband, to <laughs> jump in and help you, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen that way. There can't be mind reading, and so we examine every part of our lives and just, just, you know, the question I always ask is, is something unclear here. And that really,
0: that really did help. And it probably brought to light some of that hidden work, hidden tasks that moms do. Can you talk about that? Like what are the hidden things that you figured out that moms do? Cause I thought that was really interesting. There were things that I hadn't okay. even thought about that I do. Yes. I talked to this great sociology professor at the university of Michigan
1: and she was talking about the different kinds of hidden work again that you mentioned that moms primarily do one is kin work and that to me was i'd never heard that phrase before and that's giving emotional support to relatives buying and sending you know presents and cards handling the holidays and you know then emotion work and that's checking in on the well-being of members of the family. Like, you know, did your husband hash out that issue with his boss? And, you know, how's your tween doing with her friends at school? Are they still fighting? You know, is, is, the, is the cat still coughing? You know, it, just on and on about emotion work and making sure everybody's okay. And then Average daily household support travel time. In other words, that would be schlepping the kids to soccer practice, and then household manager, and that is constant. It's that's all the stuff that's in your head about what foods that each child likes, and that you need to hire a babysitter for the weekend, and you know, it's it's just the constant managerial tasks that never seem to end, and. You know, another thing that she told me that I thought was interesting and also tragic and annoying is that men often choose chores when even when, you know, even if they help out, they choose chores with a leisure component like running errands or yard work. And she pointed out that, you know, if if you're running errands at least you're in the car and you're playing music and it's kind of somewhat fun. But, you know, scrubbing toilets not so much, I mean, there's plenty of research about that that there's only there's certain chores that men are much more likely to do
0: Mhm-, yeah, you know what I found I did this with my husband. I wrote out like all the things, and I wrote out like all the things I'm responsible for for like Thanksgiving. I gotta talk to your mom. She asked me about what gift you think you want for Christmas, I'm like my goodness sometimes you get i get I get kind of.
1: I have blinkers on where I think, got to do this, got to do that, you know, got to got to send out holiday cards. You actually don't have to send out holiday cards if you don't want to. It's okay. Oh, me too. <laughs> uh, uh, Guy Winch, this counselor that I just love, and he said, you know, well, no, a couple people actually advised me to do this, that it's, you know, negotiation is such an important technique in a marriage. And I really, you know going back to what I was saying before about how you think things are going to happen organically, like on a weekend, we really started, well, all the time, we, I would start trading items of value. This also came from this psychologist named Joshua Coleman, who wrote the Lazy, Husband's, him, uh, the Lazy Husband. And it was all these tips about, you know, insider tips about like, you know, how he got away with stuff. And so items of value can be something like, you know, my husband plays in this kind of Middle-aged guy soccer league, so I would say like I know you love to play soccer. It would be great if you're going to play soccer. Then I could go meet my friend for coffee, and so you're you're trading all the time, and and even you know I didn't realize my husband hates to go grocery shopping. He doesn't like fluorescent lights. It's some weird tick of his. I love to go grocery shopping. I love inspecting all the food. So, I would say like, okay, if if you hate it, we don't have to do it at the same time. If if you want to take Sylvie and go to a park while I grocery shop, great. That would actually work for me. Like, I I think it's fun to see new granola flavors. And so, so we would start trading off all the time and I would kind of I would observe him and see what he really loved and what he wanted more of. And in his case, you know, he's like this fitness guy. So it was always like sport related stuff. And with me, it was time out of the house because if you're, you know, I used to do this thing where I'd say, I'm going to go in my room and I'm going to look up shoe websites or read a book and I'm just going to shut the door. No, that doesn't work because the door will open 900 times. So my items of value were kind of going out and just having him hold down the fort and meet friends or take a walk or do something like that. So we just started just, you know, look to your partner, what do they really, really want? You know, another one is I would say like, you know, if, if you want to have a friend over that you, you know, a friend that I didn't love necessarily, like great, you know, bring them over and, and then I'll do this. So in other words, it was, it was a lot of bargaining, but that's okay. I had to get over the fact of like, am I some sort of I'm being very lawyerly in my marriage, but negotiation is a good thing. And then you feel like you have, you're being heard and you have a voice. And it, it does feel a little coldly transactional, but it really made things a lot more harmonious for us.
0: Well, it takes away that whole entitlement piece, right? From either side and makes it more like we're both equally valuable and our time is equally valuable. So what do we want to do with our time and what's the most valuable to me and most valuable to you? And then we can trade it. And I agree with you. I mean, it's not sexy to have a managerial meeting about the schedule for the week or what needs to get accomplished or what you guys want to do, but it does make a world of difference. And then one thing you said in the book which I think is so powerful is about this concept of not pissing on the gift. So if you give your partner their item of value that then you're not like but when you come home I'm really mad at you that you went and did it, right? Exactly. And that comes from Terry Real as
1: well like because I realized I this is one of the things that I had to look in the mirror about is that I would say like okay great, you know, go have go have fun, go play your soccer middle, middle-aged guy, soccer league. And then when he came back, I would be angry that he left. And I would still kind of, you know, give him a little, a little bit of the silent treatment or, or make a little remark about it. You have to give freely and fully, and then, and allow them to have fun and, and no resentment afterwards, or else don't do it. Like if it really bugs you, then don't do it. I mean, you know, it was even, I'm, I'm trying to think There was there was, no, I can't remember. The thought flew out of my head. That happens to me sometimes. How about you?
0: Yeah, that happens to me too. Yeah, no, yeah, that you can't have the person come back and then now you hold a grudge against them. No, I mean, that's no. just the worst. It hurts you physiologically too. When you're holding
1: in that anger, like you are impacting your own health. You have to stay on your own side. And like stewing with resentment, it 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 gives you it's it's bad for your cortisol levels. It's bad for your mental
0: health. Yeah. I actually was able to do that is when I started though saying things like, I'm going to take some time for myself and I will be back in two hours. And like when I took the time too, right? Because you will piss on the gift if you're only, it's only your husband who's doing it. That's why you have to have this trading of the items of value. And then the most important thing To do is this whole concept of like not contaminating your time, right? Because my first instinct when I have time by myself is to like go run an errand, go to Rite Aid, go online shop for clothing for my kids for their snow boots. Like, no, stop that. Go sit in the park, like you talked about in the book, and like watch a squirrel. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) (laughs) go to your yoga class. Do not go do stuff that's for other people. Do whatever it is that you you want to do. Got to do something useful, got to cross something off my list. Yeah, that, I mean, it's hard to fight against that
1: mentality, isn't it? And like make it about somebody else. But, and that goes back to cultivating a little sense of entitlement. It is okay. I know you say this over and over, and we all do, like, it, it, cause, cause you have to remind yourself, like, it's okay to take time for yourself. It makes you a better mother. It makes you less reactive, more patient. And it's also good for your children to see that. Mothers deserve a little free time too. Again, going back to behavioral modeling, like if you're just standing in the kitchen 24 hours a day waiting to cook up something for somebody like you're depleted and you're burned out. And, and that's, that's not, it's actually good for your kids to see that you deserve a little time off too. And that very much includes stay at home mothers because that is labor and
0: it, 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 you need time off from that labor. Yeah, 100%. And I truly believe that every single woman and man, woman and man are meant for more than only taking care of their kids. So even if you are a stay at home mom, I mean, Lord bless you. That is like the hardest work that there is. But then also like you got to have some things that excite you and ignite your fire because when your kids are older, you don't want them only taking care of their kids. You want them to have things that ignite their fire because guess what? Those kids are going to grow up and leave and not be there anymore. And then it's going to feel pretty hollow. So I'm a big believer in that. I don't think that has to be work, but I think that has to be some passion project that you're a part of, something that you're excited about that just gives you joy, you love music, you love art, whatever it is that feeds you, that those things are important even when your kids are little, even if you're with your kids throughout the week. It's coming. Our new book will be here before you know it. The Working Mom Blueprint comes out May 11th, 2021. We hope you'll grab your copy. It's available for pre-order right now at amazon.com and it will be available May 11th, wherever books are sold. How about the fighting fair part with our partners? You had a whole chapter on this, on how to fight fair. What were some of the tactics that you learned? I think you talked with the fbi about part of this <laughs> oh yes, i did okay so there's a pattern and you know the famous couples
1: counselors john and julie gottman so i interviewed julie gottman and you know there's a couple of among other people and you know there's a couple of just basic things that i still remind myself to do and one is to start with i statements it's never you always or you never it's i and then describe the situation, not your partner. And this is crucial. I I still have to make myself do this all the time. So instead of saying you're a slob, you describe the situation. The house is a mess. Mm -hmm. Okay. Instead of you threw your shit everywhere. I'm sick of this. And then you talk about your feelings about it. So it's I statements. I just came home and there's crap everywhere. Describe how you feel about it. And a good way when you're describing how you feel about it, instead of saying, perhaps I feel enraged, you could say, I feel disappointed that there's crap everywhere. Because here's the thing, they can't argue with you. Immediately when you start attacking someone, even if you're mildly attacking them, they're going to get defensive. But if you say, I feel disappointed, they can't argue about your feelings. There can't be any rebuttal because I feel disappointed. Then a crucial piece of this is what you'd like them to do. Again, this was where I was going very wrong, expecting my husband to read my mind. Well, he he's just not that intuitive and that's okay, you know. So I had to train myself to clearly tell him what I would like because sometimes it can feel weirdly comfortable to feel self-righteous I was doing it. And you know, you think like, "Oh, I would never do that. I would I would help out." Well, you have to I had to climb off the cross and and tell him exactly what I wanted. And again be the grown up. So what I'd like you to do is this was a phrase that I had to be trained to say is what I'd like you to do is a couple therapists told me that. What I'd like you to do is clean up in here. You know, simple as that. And so that was kind of the four point plan. And then yes, the FBI. So I'm at the gym doing the elliptical. I, I don't exactly it's it's very mild what I do. And I'm I'm watching the television and there was this bank heist in Texas, I think, and I remember looking and the crisis negotiation unit of that town, they had, everyone came swarming in and they calmed down this guy who who was really losing his mind and got him to surrender his gun in like three minutes and I thought, wow, what do they do to calm that guy down? So I called up a guy from the FBI, Gary Nessner. He ran the crisis negotiation unit for like a decade and he was with the FBI for 30 years he put down Waco and all this, you know, prison riots oh, and wow. yeah. And now we're buddies. We are frickin' frack. It's the weirdest thing. He just came to town and we had dinner <laughs> and because I find his life fascinating, you know? So he said, Oh, you know, our behavior. they call it a behavioral staircase method. He said, Oh, it would, I said, would it work to calm down an enraged spouse? He said, Oh yeah, sure. So we use the FBI's techniques <laughs> all the time. <laughs> One of them is paraphrasing. This is psychology 101, but it's amazing how well it works. And that is that you get your partner to just repeat what your issue is in their words. So, you know, Gary would say like, you know, if someone would yell like, you damn cops, you know, you're sons of bitches. And Gary would say, it sounds like you're a suspect about why we're here and what we're doing. Right, you just want to kill me. you're concern we 're going to hurt you. is that what i'm hearing so it 's a way to calm people down, and you know every expert told me people just want to be heard, and if you 're paraphrasing what they 're saying like i can I know when my husband is zoning out and when he's thinking about like his next chess move, but if he has to pay attention to what i 'm saying in order to paraphrase me, you can 't fake a paraphrase, so he would say like okay, so you seem like you're upset that I don't know the name of Sylvie's pediatrician. And I would say, yes, yes, it's Dr. Gordon. Yes, yes, and but that would calm me down. Even if he was fishing and he didn't know what I was talking about and he would paraphrase, it was kind of funny and it would break the tension because we would just sort of laugh. And another one is emotion labeling. And that's again, you sound as though or you seem as if. So even if you're missing it, at least you're trying because you just want a little effort. You know, another one is offering minimal encouragements. And that's where if the person is talking, usually it would be me, The you, you use these short phrases to sort of convey that you're listening, you're tracking them, you're concerned. So it would be like, uh-huh, yeah, okay, I see. Yeah. So I know when Tom's doing it to me, he does it now. You know, I'll be talking and he'll say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, yep, yep. It's really hard to stay mad at someone who keeps saying, Yep, yep, (laughs) yep. Like it's you know, mirroring. So if you're like blah blah you know, you know, talking and at the end you say, and I'm pissed. If he says, hmm, uh uh-huh, and you're pissed, that that calms you down too. Open-ended questions, you know, if if one thing that Gary trained Tom to say is, Can you tell me more about that? A phrase I've never heard in my life until we started, you know, being advised by the FBI. So Tom will say, uh-huh, can you, can you tell me more about that? And, and again, it, sometimes it, it actually makes me laugh, and it is robotic, but it, it conveys that he's trying to listen, that, that he's being respectful, and I, I do it too. And even another one that was kind of kooky is allowing effective pauses, because sometimes when someone – Gary would say when, when a suspect was ranting and raving – They would stop talking, the negotiators, because and it would calm the person down because they would think, "Wait, are they still listening to me?" And that actually works too. Not silent treatment can't go too long, but just pausing for a
0: minute. So all that stuff really did, really did help. Well, and it's crazy too because my my husband, when we first started going to therapy, he's a smart guy, and he would be like, "I feel like this is just like fake. It's not real. It's fake. It's like." Wrote robotic, like you said. But then once we started doing it all the time and he realized that I would get way less angry with him, we would actually get to a solution much faster. You better believe he adopted it. And me too, because I actually love my husband and want us to be a happy couple and to be in harmony more of the time. The other thing you said about Kind of talking about your deeper feeling versus your surface feeling or like your shell feeling. In pediatrics, we talk about that like your, uh, like an egg, like your shell feeling or your yolk feeling. So like, I'm angry, like I'm really angry or I'm really frustrated would be like the shell feeling. And then like the yoke feeling would be like, I feel really lonely or I feel really sad or I feel really disappointed. And it is true that like a person can respond to a yoke feeling so much more easily than they can respond to a shell feeling because the shell feeling is like automatic, well, defensiveness. That's your fault that you're angry. I can't do anything about that. But lonely or sad, that's like intimate human connection. So I would sit there for like the whole hour with our therapist and I'd be, you know, we'd be talking about a situation with my husband and I'd be like, yeah, and I'm so angry. And then I was just like, pissed off. And then like, I was like, oh, why don't you just leave and not be part of this relationship anymore? And then she's like, I hear you. What's the deeper feeling? And I'm like, I'm telling you the deeper feeling. And she's like, no, seriously. What's the deep? Tell me more about the deep feeling. And then once I'd say the word like disappointed, then she'd go, ah, oh, Yes. And then my husband would start to tear up because then he felt really like, oh, now I get you. Now I hear you. And it took me literally 10 sessions of going, "Miss Slow Learner, every single time to this therapist for me to learn that my angry emotion that I was projecting was not nearly as helpful to me or to him as like that deep emotion. So it really is all in the way we presented or in our words. And these things do make a difference, even if they feel corny in the beginning.
1: You know, it can be hard to make yourself vulnerable. I mean, it, it's easier once you get into the habit as you did, right? But it, it, it takes, it takes a while sometimes. And I have never heard shell and the yolk.
0: That is so easy to grasp. I, may I, may I borrow that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's from Dr. Amy Stober, who's a psychologist in town in Portland. And we have this thing called the Children's Health Alliance. And we do all this resilience training for kids. So it's just a way to talk to like toddlers when they're like, that you can be like, you're disappointed. You didn't get to pour the milk by yourself. You know, that type of thing. (laughs) You You seem disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of kids. So tell me also how you've learned that we can enlist our kids in lightening our own household responsibility burdens because part of this whole letting go is like giving stuff to our partners stop being so frenetically busy all the time like stop taking on every single cooking opportunity but then also let our kids be part of it tell me about that well that's the thing is that
1: there's there's a pretty significant amount of research now that kids are just not doing chores and there's uh, various reasons for that, you know parents feel guilty um that they work really long hours, and you know kids' schedules are often pretty overloaded. I mean, I never did anything after school. I watched soap operas with my with my pals, you know, and you know it was funny because it didn't when I was kind of putting together the concepts of these of this book, I thought, wait a minute, kids don't even you know in these kind of the so called chore wars. K Ki- the, the fact that children can actually help the two of you out is not even mentioned usually. And, and how odd is that? And you know, then I started sort of delving into research about like, okay, so what, what do kids do? And there was this one survey that found a quarter of children ages like, you know, five to the teen years didn't do a single thing around the house to help their parents, including make their own beds. You know, UCLA study too about how. Two thirds of kids just ignore their parents when the parents ask them to do things, and so, and look, I I do understand. I understand the guilt, and I understand that it can be easier to do things yourself. Particularly when my child was really, you know, like two or three. You know, I would dread when she wanted to help, and and it's also like, okay, I can have her pick up these thirty thousand Legos on the floor, or I can do it, and it'll take three seconds. And you know, when you want to check off the boxes, it's just easier to do it yourself. But of course. You're not doing any favors for your child when you do that, you know, when you instill in them a sense of learned helplessness and you do everything for them. So, you know, we really had to, when we were divvying up chores, we thought, okay, time to have our child help. Because as you know, as a pediatrician, little kids are programmed to want to help. They want to help you, especially when they're in the toddler age, right? Yeah. They want to help. They want to do it all themselves. Yes. <laughs> yeah it benefits your child. I mean, you know, there's, there's other research about kids who do chores, they grow up and they're more successful in life. They've even studied kids as they've grown up, you know, over decades and they have better relationships. And so, you know, and also you want to, you know, there's other terrible studies about how girls get less allowance than there's even this pay gap in allowances that girls get let you know fewer dollars than boys do. Oh, interesting. You know, there's a whole lot of issues that stem from not having your kids help out and they can and so you just have to position it as we are a family and families have to get things done in the house and if you get them if you hook them when they're really young then you can get those habits going for life and like you just say things like, you know, in this family this is what we do. And again, if they're little enough You can just declare rules as a fact, and they'll they'll absorb it and believe it. Like you know, they'll think it's inscribed on a tablet somewhere. And and I mean, I used to tell my daughter that Toys R Us was closed on weekends. You know, she believed it. I mean, (laughs) lie to them
0: necessarily, but like stuff like that too. That's funny.
1: (laughs) So you know, so we really we when we did a kind of a rejiggering of our chores, we started having her do stuff because. I have a friend whose daughter is in college and the daughter was telling me that her roommate didn't know which was the washer and which was the dryer when she did laundry for the first time at the age of 19. You're not doing your kid any favors if they don't know how to cook a simple meal or do anything on their own when they get older. You know, and you also if you're raising a son, you you don't want them to that they don't have to do anything and they can offload it onto their partner. And so we, you know, it was a shock to her because she was getting a free ride, but we had her do chores, which continue to this day. And once she internalized it enough and it became the norm, you know, it's just becomes something that you do. So she doesn't we don't get pushback. But that's that's because we hooked her early.
0: Yeah, and that requires Mama's giving space for it. I mean, that requires cutting out maybe other activities so that that way you're not so rushed that you have to get out of the house because you have like the next thing to get to every single minute of every single day. I mean, chores are not going to happen if you're never at home. (laughs) <laughs> chores are not going to happen if you only have 20 minutes to be at home and then you have to rush off to the next thing because like you said it's way faster as a parent to just do it yourself. So chores only happen if you give them the space and you make them the priority and that requires doing doing less, which as you all know is like one of my main mantras, do less so that you can do more of the things that really really matter. <laughs> okay, so finally and I think this actually goes back to that like learned helplessness thing. I mean, so much of what I took away from your book was about how for men, them not helping quote unquote at home or them not stepping up or showing up is so much about evolutionary biology and then also learned helplessness and us not having the tools that we have needed in the past to be able to say, hey, this is what I need. And then also just these like traditional gender roles and responsibilities. So in your mind, how many generations do you think it will take to get to more true equity? And what do you think we need to get there beyond what you talked about in the book? Like what has to happen in our society or is it just time? Is it just going to be a couple more generations before we end up with more equality, more equity? Okay.
1: you know, And and I wanted to tell you also that one of the main things that one of my behavioral missteps for sure was something called maternal gatekeeping which is where i wasn't allowing tom in i was taking over everything that's where you can either open up the gate and let your partner help or clang the gate shut and i was i realized i was doing it all the time i was if he would be the baby i would say well i would hover over him it can be either verbally saying like just just give her to me which is what i always said or it can even be like expressions of impatience like ah oh, ah oh, you, you know he would try to bathe the baby, and I would say uh, you're you're drowning her you, you have to hold her head this way here just, yeah, no, no, she's slipping, just give her to me well I had to I realized I was doing that all the time, and so I really had to step back and allow him to get in there and do it his way, not criticize what he did, not just just let him do it and I think back on the times that I shut him out, I still do it you know i have to I have to watch myself like I was texting with a bunch of moms recently. And I was kind of snickering because we were gossiping. And he walked by and said, you know, what are you texting about? And I said, oh, you wouldn't be interested. Well, that's even a form of maternal gatekeeping because he he would be interested. It's all the parents of his child's friends. And like, you know, another one of my friends, she would CC her husband. He works all the time. He's constantly traveling. But when she would set up playdates, she would CC him. And even though he never responded, I thought, that's great. Why not CC him? Why not bring him in? Even if he doesn't respond, it's good that he's knows what's going on. Totally. Eight, one, you know? totally. So going back to what you asked, how many generations? That is a very interesting question. I, I think, you know, when I do events, women will come up to me and say, you know, is anything going to change with me? Why do I have to keep doing this and doing this? And I said, oh, you're, you know, we're all going to have to keep doing this forever. It's not like I wrote the book and everything's done now. I do maintenance constantly. I constantly have the principles in, you know still in my head. And I, I've sort of positioned it in my own way, in my own head is like, okay, things are going to be much better for my child's generation because she's seeing us and she's modeling our behavior. I don't know. I would say, God, three generations. I think, I'm trying to think of similar situations. I mean, you think about, I don't know, even a social issue like how things have changed in one generation in terms of respect for people of different sexual persuasions. And yeah, yeah. And that took what? One generation, not that things are perfect now, but certainly better. But I would say, oh God, three, three, unfortunately. I mean, I, and of course, what has to happen are things like, you know, parental, decent parental leave for both parents, not just one. And, yes, amen. You know, it would be great if we could be Denmark and have, you know, daycare for all and, and, you know, again, decent parental leave and respect for parents. And, you know, some countries have visiting nurses to help you out when you're, you know, have a new baby and you don't know what the hell you're doing. So, I mean, along with society changing and having more, you know, support for parents, it's interesting how some tech companies have these you know, really large parental leaves. I don't know how many people actually take them, but it's interesting to see how businesses are sometimes taking the lead with this stuff, probably bowing to, you know, societal pressure. So, you know, I don't know. Do you think, what do you think, Whitney? Do you think it's, am I too optimistic to think
0: three generations? No, I think, I think three generations is totally reasonable. I think my point in asking is really that I think that it's still going to take time. So I find a lot of moms and myself, sometimes I'm prone to think this, like, well, I don't know. It's just the way society is. So I guess I'm just going to have to deal with it. And oh, well, like my husband's like Neanderthal still in terms of his thinking, and I'm not going to be able to make any progress on this. And what I remind myself is including the concepts that are in your book. Like, no, I might not be able to change everything for everyone else. I can't change society. I can't change the fact that I'm the one who sent all the emails about our upcoming vacations from extended family and all that. But I can change for myself in my house. A, the way that I respond to my husband. I can step away. Like you said, that's a huge one for me. I can leave the house and let him be fully responsible. And then I can keep my mouth shut when he's parenting my kids and it's not exactly the way that I want it, which is extremely difficult as a pediatrician. We had a whole therapy session on this, my husband and I. And then I can use the techniques that you talk about in your book to make it so that we, in our little micro- System in our households are making it as equitable as possible, not equal, but equitable, and where it feels like we're partners, like we're true partners. And I think that's the most important thing for moms is to think about. Okay, yeah, there's hope. You know, for my daughter's generation and her daughter's generation, there's hope, and I think we still keep pushing for those bigger societal things, but at the same time, what work can we do right now in our own relationships to make our partnerships as successful as possible?
1: And you know equitable is the perfect word because it doesn't don't get hung up on like fifty 50 or forty sixty like if if it feels fair to you then great like my now Tom, my husband he cooks. For I like to cook. And, and so he, he cooks for our, our family like once or twice a week. Is that equal? No. But that feels good to me and it feels like a treat. And so if it feels fair, great. You know, doesn't need to be 50 50. Right. Absolutely. Probably
0: won't be 50 50. <laughs> yeah. Probably won't be. And that's okay. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. All right, Jancy, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think that people are going to walk away, listeners will walk away, just with some real tactical tips to take home to their families, but then also hopefully a deeper understanding of why we get into these issues with our partners and how to not hate our partners after we have kids, and instead how to really cherish them and cherish our relationships with our partners and with our families. Thanks so much for being here. My
1: pleasure.
0: If you want more of the modern mommy dog podcast make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes we'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag modern mommy dog if you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well thanks for listening